Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we feature Howard Hendricks, also known as The Prof. For over 50 years, he was a professor at the Dallas Theological Seminary. He mentored many Christian leaders, including Chuck Swindoll, Tony Evans, Joseph Stowell, and David Jeremiah. Today, Howard Hendricks presents a study on Never Stop Growing. So if you have your Bible with you, will you turn again to the Gospel by Mark, this time to chapter 5. Last night we focused our attention on chapter 4 and discovered our sovereign God is in control of the physical, of the natural, and no storms ever come into your life but what they come across the screen of his will. And today I want to turn to chapter 5. And I want to study with you for a few moments the story of Jairus. If you have a Bible, if you will open your Bible or New Testament to that passage, it will help you understand where we're going. Suppose you went to your medical doctor for your yearly physical. And after a battery of tests and an incisive diagnosis, the doctor said to you, I hate to tell you this, but you have a disease which is terminal. Being a medically informed individual, you would get a second opinion and probably a third only to discover all of these individuals came up with the same diagnosis and told you you have less than a year to live. What difference would that information make in your life, your plans, your perspectives, your priorities. Ladies and gentlemen, scripture and reality both inform you that all of us are terminal. All of us. In fact, the only certainty of life is death. George Bernard Shaw said it. The stats on death are impressive. One out of one of us die. (laughs) And there's no guarantee that you will live tomorrow or another year. But unfortunately, many of Americans are committed to refuse to join the universal conspiracy mentioning death. 
In another generation, it was sex that was unmentionable. Today, it's death. We incessantly discuss sex, but we refuse to discuss the greatest reality confronting all of us, and that's death. In Mark chapter 5, you are introduced to a very impressive individual by the name of Jairus, who had a daughter. I can identify with this having lost one. Twelve years of age. May I remind you that to the Jew, a girl never became a woman until she was twelve years old and one day. And this young lady was seriously confronting death. The story is told in two parts in Mark. In verses 21 to 25, we are informed she is at the point of death. But there's still hope. But in 35 to 43, she is dead. And from a human point of view, no hope. The interesting thing to me, and often overlooked in my judgment, is that between these two paragraphs, at the point of death and dead, we're introduced to a woman who for 12 years, the same length of age of Jairus' daughter, had a serious problem gynecologically. She was bleeding for 12 years. And her problem was not simply that she was physically unclean in Israel. She was also ceremonially unclean. She could not go to the synagogue. People avoided her like the plague. She was virtually like a leper. And as you know the story, it's between the time that Jairus knows that she's at the point of death and that on the way he is informed she died, that you have this story planted of this woman desperately, in need, scared, spitless, to even say a word. She sneaks up behind the Savior because she says, if I can just touch the hem, probably the tassels on the garment, I will be made whole. And the moment she did, she was supernaturally healed right on the spot. And interestingly, Jesus turns and says to the disciples, Who touched my garment? You know, there's a lot of humor in the scripture. This is a case in point. I always identify with the disciples. Who touched your garment? How in the world do we know? (laughs) They've been touching your garment ever since we left the last city. You see, the difference is Jesus Christ can distinguish between the indiscriminate press of a mob 
and a touch of faith. Can you? And then the story goes on. And the mourners are brought in. You need to read in your Bible dictionary of the process. I could take a couple hours to tell you their role. These individuals who were hired to scream and to mourn in order to prove that there was genuine mourning on the part of the family. And Jesus comes in and he clears out the mourners, takes three of the disciples plus the parents of this young lady into a quiet place. And you will remember if you have read the text, you come across that expression that most people stumble over when Jesus said, Talitha kum, which is Aramaic, fascinating. Because the rest of the story is in Greek, not this. Where did Mark get the story? He was an on-the-spot reporter. He saw it all. But he never forgot those words. They stuck in his mind like a piece of glass. Now, what does Jesus intend for us to learn in this passage? May I suggest two lessons that you and I desperately need in this culture? One of them we need right now. And one of them we need for the rest of our life. The first lesson is that biblical faith is always dynamic. It is never static. It has got to grow because you were born with life that results in growth. When I was a student at Wheaton College, I had the privilege of living in the home of a lovely couple, return missionaries from the Orient, who had a daughter who at the time was 48 years of age, but who had a mentality of a child of five or six. And I remember coming home from the college, and before I climbed those stairs to go to my room on the second floor, I would watch this woman pick up a telephone, talk into it, though there was no one on the other end of the line. Spend her time, hour after hour, playing with her dolls. And as a young unmarried man, I will never forget going to my room, throwing myself across the bed and saying, God, What a tragedy. My friend, do you think it's any less of a tragedy? That God gave you birth, spiritual birth, eternal birth, but you're not growing? Oh, you're growing old. All of us are. But you're not growing up. And I believe this principle is instituted in Jairus' experience. Because when he first comes, he falls at the feet of Jesus and he pleads earnestly, remember who he is. 
He is the chief citizen in the community, the ruler of the synagogue. His primary business was to keep that synagogue operational and functioning according to its specifications. He was highly regarded in the Jewish community. And he's willing to swallow his pride, to swallow his prejudice, to swallow the very fact that he could have been reamed out of the community coming to Jesus whom the religious leaders had already concluded was a heretic. But so desperate is his need that he comes and says, just put your hands on my daughter because I believe you can heal her. My friend, that's the first step of faith. But God doesn't stop there. That's why I resist. I understand, and so do you, that we encourage people to make a decision concerning Jesus Christ. The problem is most of them never get beyond there. And if you become a new believer, and many of us are older believers in this congregation, my friend, you never stop growing. You never graduate from the school of discipleship. And as long as you grow, you live. And as long as you live, you grow. Jean and I lost one of our favorite friends some time ago. Her name was Mrs. Simpson. I can still remember the last time I saw her on earth. We were at a Christian Christmas party. You ever been to one of those? Avoid them like the plague. It was boredom wall to wall. Everybody trying to appear to be pious in front of everyone else. And she walked in, spotted me. She said, well, Hendricks, I haven't seen you for a long time. What are the last last five books you've read? Which has a way of changing the dynamics of a group. And she said, well, let's not sit here and bore each other with each other. Let's get into a discussion. And if we can't find anything to discuss, let's get into an argument. (laughs) Last time she went to the Holy Land, I took a group of NFL football players with her. And my most vivid memory to this day is Mrs. Simpson up at the top of one of these tells hollering out to these football guys, come on, men, get with it. (laughs) She died in her daughter's home in Dallas, and she called me and she said, Howie, mother's gone home to be with the Lord. I said, let me come over. I came over. She said, you know, this wonderful thing happened last night. I said, really? Tell me about it. She said, before my mother died, she'd sat down at her little desk and wrote out her goals for the next 10 years. Yes! That dear woman gave me the ultimate pattern of how to grow old in the Lord. And he will take you through various steps in that process, just as he did for Jairus. And I think it's interesting, as I mentioned, 
that this dramatic experience with the woman occurs between them. I am convinced it was a part of God's opportunity to bolster his faith. But he takes him to the next step and says, look, stop fearing and keep on believing. The implication being you are going to see see something happen that you have never dreamed about. And that's exactly what took place. And so when he arrives at the home, he sees a commotion. The text says, I love that. These professional mourners doing their gig. And there are two sharp contrasts. One is the contrast of attitudes. You look at the mourners, they are totally uncontrolled. They are without any limitations. They are yelling their head off, they're loud, and they're desperate. And over here is the picture of Jesus, totally under control, relaxed, quiet, confident. What happens to you in a crisis? This is why I love to work as I have with the police department. When I used to represent our city in the area of all kinds of social problems and saw individuals who had such a passion that they were willing to risk their life. And when in a crisis, unbelievably under control, I'm talking about gunfire going off in every direction. I'm talking about walking into a home where there is a man beating his wife to a pulp. And they walk in to break it up only to discover the woman hitting them over her head with a baseball bat. Because they're putting cuffs on the husband who was in the process of killing them. This is almost the picture that comes to my mind when I see the Lord Jesus. And there's a second contrast, and that is there are not only different attitudes of the people in the scene, but there are different expectations. The mourner said she's dead. There's no hope. It's all over. And you can almost hear him behind the scenes saying, look, we're professionals at this. We work at this every day. We know when the pulse is gone, the life is gone. And then your eye shifts over to Jesus Christ when he says, you're wrong. She's not dead. She's sleeping. In other words, it's tentative. It'll be over in a period of time. It's not all over. But there is a second lesson. Speaking to a large group of students, the thing I look for most in a student is a learning attitude. I couldn't care less what they know. I want to know, how much do you want to grow? 
And you've been listening all week to a collection of individuals, all of whom I have had the privilege of being their teacher. And someone asked me after the meeting last night, what was it that attracted you to these individuals? And Joe told you just a moment ago, they're hungry. I will never forget the day that I went home from seminary having met Joe. Not for the first time I had seen him in his father's church in New Jersey. And Joe, would you believe, gave me his bed so that I had a place to sleep. During that weekend, I was there, and I fell in love with him. When I saw him on the campus and began to talk with him, I was so impacted. I wish my wife were here to tell you the story. Because I came home and I burst into tears and said, Sweetheart, I finally found a man with a passion for pastoral ministry. You know, it was during the time when everybody was coming up with all these crazy ideas and maybe we didn't need the church anymore and certainly a pastor is a person who is expendable. And this man grabbed my heart and put a figure four on it from which I've never been the same. And what I would say to you as students as well as you who are older. Because my problem is I not only work with students, I work with people in the senior age. And they're dying before they ever die. Because they stop growing. A guy said to me sometime, about 89, he said, you know, it's all over for me. I said, wrong, it's not all over for you. Are you dead? No, not yet. (laughs) Well, I said, then when you die, give me a call. (laughs) And I know God has finished his work in you. The reason I'm so excited, and by the way, your new president has a tremendous passion for young people. Because you are our future. See, it's not too long before I'm going to be pushing daisies someplace. (laughs) I'm going to be home in heaven. But you young people are going to be here. Still witnessing for Jesus Christ and teaching the word of God that you learned so well with such a capable faculty at this institution. The second lesson I learned, and I wish we had more time, but you have it to think about it. In a perishing society, and for your information, that is the society in which you are living. In a perishing society, you need an eternal perspective on death. And now we encounter a third major contrast between the mourners and between Jesus. When Jesus said, little girl, get up! 
the mourners roared. I preached a message many years ago and entitled it, When They Laughed at a Funeral. I mean, you can see the mentality behind. This man's hopes is groundless. He's calm, but it's deceptive. This young lady is dead. And that's why we've come. Let's get on with the funeral. And then your eye shifts to the blessed Lord as you hear him give that command. Rise up. Strong faith in contrast to no faith. And what is impossible with men becomes possible with God. And I love the translation, though it's inadequate. They, the mourners, were completely astonished. That's the tamest translation you can come up with. It's almost impossible to translate this from the Greek language. Because what they are saying, in effect, wow! We never saw this before in all of our life. You know, men and women, the Bible uses three grabbing metaphors of believers' death. You got a piece of paper? Write down the metaphor, and then you can study the passage on your own because we don't have the time. The first thing that God calls death of the believer is falling asleep. Jot down 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 18. The thing that fascinates me about this passage is three times over. Whenever you find anything repeated in the scripture, you better underline it. You better nail it. Because it's significant truth. God does not waste words. Three times over, those who are fallen asleep in Christ are going to be raised. From the dead. Secondly, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, death by Paul is called going on a journey. And when you read that passage, he says, I finished the course, I fought the faith. But now, the time of my departure, very significant word. It's used of the striking of a tent. You loosen the means of holding that tent up because you give obvious obvious evidence you're taking it down. That's what death is. It's used of the untying of a boat for a journey. The anchor is lifted, the ropes are loosened. And the ship begins to move out of the harbor in the direction of the sea. The third analogy that is used of the believer's death is we're going home. And you all know it so well. It's in John 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. As we saw last night. 
I am God. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again. So the fact that you saw him go is proof positive he will come again. And when he comes, having prepared a home, he's going to take you to be with him. With him. In the Father's home. For eternity. Can I ask you two brief questions? Who's afraid to go home? Who's afraid to go on a journey? Who's afraid to go to sleep? No wonder in the passage we saw here again, over and over again, throughout the New Testament, faith and fear are like oil and water. You cannot mix them. And you are a person destined for an eternity with Jesus Christ because he's your Savior. The second question I would ask you, what's the most exciting experience in your life? The birth of your firstborn child? The graduation from college? The day you were married? My friend, all of those are in the past with wonderful continuing blessings. But we're talking about hope for the future. And the most exciting day of your life, and if you cannot take it any other way, then take it by faith. It's the day God snatches you off of this planet to take you to your home where you will be forever. If you ever get to Rome, there are many tours. Whatever you do, don't miss the tours of the catacombs. The catacombs were the places where the early believers during that Roman period buried the Christians. They were not allowed in any public cemetery. They wanted to get believers out of their way. So when they buried them, they buried them in the famous catacombs. You know what's the most fascinating thing? Hopefully someone knows enough to tell you the true story. There are no birth dates beside those individuals. You will never know unless you do research when they were born. They put their death date. Why? Because, my friends, that's the day of your coronation. Far more important than you were born is the day you died eternally saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Some time ago, I lost a very close friend, 
really a young man. I had the privilege of leading this man to Christ and discipling him. He was 38 years of age. He was the CEO of the largest corporation headquartered in Dallas. He was sort of a phenomenon in the city, in the business realm. The board of that corporation required him to spend four days every year before a battery of specialized physicians who would give him every test, ask him every question, do every examination, and on the last day on Friday, they would call him in and give him a report. He went in for this particular year at Friday, and they said, Sir, you are a perfect specimen of humanity. We have found nothing in any of our study that would prove that you are in physical need. In fact, we could use you as an illustration out of the med school of people in good health. And less than 24 hours later, he was stone dead. And his dear wife called me, a woman I have come to love, the way she has taken those three children and raised them without a father. I'm hoping one of them at least is going to show up in one of my classrooms. But the moment I got the news, I jumped in my car, I took off across Dallas to his home. But on the way, I had some moronic thinking. Did you ever catch yourself with that? Don't look so pious. (laughs) I can still remember saying it. This is amazing. Here's a man in total health, and the best doctors in this part of the United States affirmed that he was. And less than 24 hours later, he's dead. What's so amazing about that? The amazing thing, my friend, is not that you die. The amazing thing is that you live. Because we think we're in the land of the living, on our way to the land of the dying, my friend, nothing could be further from biblical truth. You and I are in the land of the dying, on our way to the land of the living. Never forget it. And our challenge today, in my judgment, is to teach a younger generation how to die. One of my students, whom I loved so deeply, Richard Strauss, the son of Lehman Strauss, the great Bible teacher who used to be here at this conference years ago, contracted a very lethal disease. And in a short period of time, 
he was in the presence of God. And I will never forget him telling me, Prof, I got my work cut out for me. I spent all of my life teaching these people how to live. And now I have an opportunity to teach them how to die. Have you read the 90th Psalm? Don't miss it before the day is out. It could change your whole life. It's the oldest psalm in the Psalter. It was written by Moses. When? At the end of his life. How did he spend the bulk of his life? Answer, burying people. He buried a whole generation on his watch. And that is a way of getting your attention after a while. And he says, look, you need to know that your life is just a breath of smoke. You are here today. You are gone tomorrow. God has simply given you a little slice of life in which to live for his glory. And that's why he prays in verse 12 of that psalm, teach us, Lord, Teach us. Are you ready to learn? Teach us to number our days that we may get us a heart of wisdom. The ability to live your life intelligently, realistically, and supernaturally by God's grace. One of my students who later became one of my colleagues is a graduate of Harvard University. Probably one of the most brilliant students I have ever had graduated from that great university with a Ph.D. and became a member of our staff in our Hebrew department. And one day I spoke in chapel on the 90th Psalm. Now, I'm not a Hebraist. I certainly study it. I use it all the time. But to give a message on this 90th Psalm in front of somebody who knows a whole lot more than I forgot, which is a big percentage. And at the end of the thing, he waited till everybody went out of the chapel and threw his arms around me and said, Prof, I'll never be the same again. He went home. He got himself a little reverse counter. Have you ever seen them? They sell them in business stores. You know, you press the thing, and then one day disappears, another day. He sat down and figured out what he could normally expect for his lifespan. Set that number up. And every day on his calendar, he would write the number when he pressed that and one lower number. Now, people will say to me, my, how morbid. (laughs) (laughs) Try how meaningful. See, my friends, you and I don't have eternity in which to make our impact for Jesus. All you have is what God has given you right now.
I want to close with a quote from C.S. Lewis that has marked me. Because it comes right out of the truth of this passage. It's a quotation by C.S. Lewis on hope. Hope means a continual looking forward to the eternal world. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next one. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. And what drives my life is what am I living for? Because I spend so much time, business, professional people, students, people in all kinds of business, they're so welded to this world that I often wonder, what's it going to take to release them to be free to spend the rest of their life building into the life of others? May God richly bless you. Thank you for the privilege of being with you today. You've been listening to Howard Hendricks. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.